Good morning, planet Earth. Good morning, planet Bo Blimpdoc. It is Wednesday, June the 22nd, 2022. Are you ready, baby? Are you warmed up? It's Wednesday, June the 22nd, 2022, Boblimp Dock, near 6.30 a.m. Mountain Standard Time, here in glorious Utah. You ready? For Freddy? Are you ready? For Chewbacca and those Wookiee tribes hiding in the hills, are you ready, baby, for the Frunctus gang, their forming cadres outside of your village, baby? Yes, indeed. On this date, June the 22nd, 1941, the Fuhrer, Adolf Hitler, the German High Command, launched the invasion of the Soviet Union, Operation Barbarossa. And at that time, the demarcation point, the the, 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 the point at which you would actually begin operations was in Poland because Poland had been partitioned by Stalin and Hitler. One of those inconvenient facts we don't talk about. The fact that there were two countries that invaded Poland in 1939. One was Germany under Hitler. The other was the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin. So when Barbarossa began, it began in Poland. It's something I'd like you to think about as I read on. Um, I'm going to read from the Encyclopedia Britannica's summary of Barbarossa, and then we're going to talk about it, okay? Operation Barbarossa, original name Operation Fritz, during World War II, code name for the German invasion of the Soviet Union, which was launched on June the 22nd, 1941. The failure of German troops to defeat Soviet forces in the campaign signaled a crucial turning point in the war. I'm just going to add an editorial comment here. That's an understatement. The failure to defeat the Soviet Union in World War II was the defeat of Germany. And I'll continue. Although Adolf Hitler had congratulated himself on the German-Soviet non-aggression pact of 1939 as a matter of expediency, Anti-Bolshevism had remained his most profound emotional conviction as World War II entered its second year. Following the Soviet occupation of the Baltic states and of Bessarabia and northern Bukovina in June 1940, which put Soviet forces in proximity to Romanian oil fields on which Germany depended, Hitler's long-standing interest in overthrowing the Soviet regime was heightened. He became acutely suspicious of the, of the intentions of the Soviet leader, 
Joseph Stalin, and he began to feel that he could not afford to wait to complete the subjugation of Western Europe as he had originally planned before dealing with the Soviet Union. Hitler and his generals had originally scheduled the invasion of the USSR for mid-May 1941. But the unforeseen necessity of invading Yugoslavia and Greece in April of that year forced them to postpone the Soviet campaign to late June. The swiftness of Hitler's Balkan victories enabled him to keep to his revised timetable, but the five weeks delay shortened the time for carrying out the invasion of the USSR and was to prove the more serious because in 1941 the Russian winter would arrive earlier than usual. Hmm. Nevertheless, Hitler and the heads of the Oberkommando des Heers OKH or German Army High Command, namely Army Commander-in-Chief Walter von Brauchisch and the Army General Staff Chief Franz Halder, were convinced that the Red Army could be defeated in two or three months and that by the end of October the Germans would have conquered the whole European part of Russia and Ukraine west of a line stretching from Archangel, Arch, Archangel to Astrakhan. The invasion of the Soviet Union was originally given the code name Operation Fritz, but as preparation began, Hitler renamed it Operation Barbarossa after the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, who sought to establish German predominance in Europe. Yeah. For the campaign against the Soviet Union, the Germans allotted almost 150 divisions, containing a total of 3 million men. Among those units were 19 panzer divisions, and in total, Barbarossa force had about 3,000 tanks, 7,000 artillery pieces, and 2,500 aircraft. It was, in effect, the largest and most powerful invasion force in human history. The German strength was further increased by more than 30 divisions of Finnish and Romanian troops. The Soviet Union had twice or perhaps three times the number of both tanks and aircraft as the Germans had, but their aircraft were mostly obsolete. The Soviet tanks were about equal to those of Germans, however, a greater hindrance to Hitler's chances of victory was the German intelligence service underestimated the troop reserves that Stalin could bring up from the depths of the USSR. The Germans correctly estimated that there were about 150 divisions in the western part of the USSR and reckoned that 50 more might be produced. But the Soviets actually brought up more than 200 fresh divisions by the middle of August, making a total of 360. The consequence was that, though the Germans succeeded in shattering the original Soviet armies by superior technique, they then found their path blocked by fresh ones. The effects of the miscalculations were increased because much of August was wasted while Hitler and his advisors were having long arguments as to what course they should follow after their initial victories. 
Another factor in the Germans' calculations was purely political, though no less mistaken. They believed that within three to six months of their invasion, the Soviet regime would collapse from lack of domestic support. On June the 22nd, 1941, the German offensive was launched by three army groups under the same commanders as in the invasion of France in 1940. On the left, the northern arm of the advance, an army group under General Wilhelm von Lieb struck East Prussia into the Baltic states towards Leningrad, now St. Petersburg once again. On the right, south, Another army under General Gerd von Rundstedt with an armored group under General Paul Ludwig von Kleist advanced from the southern Poland into Ukraine against Kiev, whence it was to wheel southeastward to the coast of, Blacks, of the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov. Last, in the center, north of the Pripet Marshes, which, you know, is more or less, yeah, Pripet Marshes, the main blow was delivered by General Fedor von Bock's army group with one army armored group under General Heinz Guderian and another under General Hermann Hoth thrusting northeastward at Smolensk and Moscow. The invasion along an 1,800-mile front took the Soviet leadership completely by surprise and caught the Red Army in an unprepared and partially demobilized state. As part of the southern flake of Box Group, Guderian's tanks raced 50 miles beyond the frontier on the first day of the invasion and were at Minsk, 200 miles beyond it, on June the 27th. That's five days, brothers and sisters. At Minsk, they conversed with Hoss tanks, which had attacked from the northern flank but box infantry would, could, could not follow up quickly enough to complete the encirclement of the Soviet troops in the area, though 300,000 prisoners were taken in that salient. A large part of the Soviet forces was able to escape to the east. The Soviet armies were clumsily handled and frittered their tank strength away in piecemeal action like that of the French in 1940, but the isolated Soviet troops fought with a stubbornness that the French had not shown, and their resistance imposed a break by continuing to block road centers long after the German tide had swept past them. The result was similar when Guderian's tanks, having crossed the Dnieper River on July the 10th, entered Smolensk six days later and converged with Haas thrust through Vitebsk. 200,000 Soviet prisoners were taken, but some Soviet forces were withdrawn from the trap to the line of the Desna, and a large pocket of resistance lay behind the German armor. By mid-July, how, how, moreover, by mid-July, moreover, I gotta drink some coffee. By mid-July, moreover, a series of rainstorms were turning the sandy Russian roads into clogging mud, over which the wheeled vehicles of the German transport behind the tanks could make only very slow progress. The Germans also began to be hampered by the scorched earth policy adopted by retreating Soviets. The Soviet troops burned crops, destroyed bridges, and evacuated factories in the face of the German advance. Entire steel and munitions plants in the westernmost parts of the Soviet Union were dismantled and shipped by rail to the east, where they were put back into production. The Soviets also destroyed or evacuated most of their rolling stock, that is, railroad cars, thus depriving the Germans of the use of the Soviet rail system. 
Since Soviet railroad track was of different gauge from that of German track, the German rolling stock was consequently useless on it. Nevertheless, by mid-July, the Germans had advanced more than 400 miles and were only 200 miles from Moscow. They still had ample time to make decisive gains before the onset of winter, but they lost the opportunity primarily because of arguments throughout August between Hitler and the German high command. The German high command proposed Moscow as the main objective. Hitler wanted the major effort to be directed southeastward through the Ukraine and the Donetsk Basin into the Caucasus with a minor swing northwestward against Leningrad. In Ukraine, meanwhile, Rundstedt and Kleist had made short work of the foremost Soviet defenses, stronger though the latter had been. A new Soviet front south of Kiev was broken by the end of July, and in the next fortnight the Germans swept down to the Black Sea mouths of the Bug and the Dnieper rivers to converge with Romania's simultaneous offensive. Kleist was then ordered to wheel northward from central Ukraine and Guderian southward from Smolensk for a pincer movement around the Soviet forces behind Kiev. By the end of September, the clause of the encirclement Encir excuse me, the clause of the encircling movement had caught 520,000 men. That's a lot of prisoners, brothers and sisters. These gigantic encirclements were partly the fault of inept Soviet high commanders and partly the fault of Stalin, who as commander-in-chief stubbornly overrode the advice of his generals and ordered his armies to stand and fight instead of allowing them to retreat eastward and regroup in preparation for a counter-offensive. As winter approached, Hitler stopped Lieb's northward drive on the outskirts of Leningrad. He ordered Rundstedt and Kleist, however, to press on from the Dnieper toward the Don and the Caucasus. Bach, meanwhile, was to resume advance, his advance on Moscow. Bach's renewed advance began, began on October the 2nd, 1941. Its prospects looked bright, but when Bach's army brought off a great encirclement around Vyazma, where 600,000 more Soviet troops were captured, that left the Germans momentarily with almost a clear path to Moscow. But the Vyazma battle was not completed until late October. The German troops were tired, the country became a morass as the weather got worse, and fresh Soviet forces appeared in the Germans' path as they plodded slowly forward. Some of the German generals wanted to break off the offensive and to take up a suitable winter line. But Bach wanted to press on, believing that the Soviets were on the verge of collapse, while Brauchisch and Halder tended to agree with this view. As that also accorded with Hitler's desire, he made no objection. The temptation of Moscow, now so close in the front of their eyes, was too great for any of the topmost leaders to resist. On December the 2nd, a further effort was launched and some German detachments penetrated into the suburbs of Moscow. However, the advance as a whole was held up in the forest covering the capital. The stemming of this last phase of the great German offensive was partly due to the effects of Russian winter, the sub-zero temperatures of which were the most severe in several decades. In October and November, a 
a wave of frostbite cases had decimated the ill-clad German troops, for whom provisions of winter clothing had not been made, while the icy cold paralyzed the Germans' mechanized transport tanks, artillery, and aircraft. The Soviets, by contrast, were well-clad and tended to fight more effectively in winter than did the Germans. By this time, German casualties had mounted to levels that were unheard of in the, in the campaigns against France and the Balkans. By November, the Germans had suffered 730,000 casualties. In the south, Kleist had already reached Rostov on the Don, gateway to the Caucasus. On November 22nd, but had exhausted his tank's fuel in doing so, Rundstedt, seeing the place to be untenable, wanted to evacuate, but was overruled by Hitler. A Soviet counteroffensive captured Rostov on November 28th, and Rundstedt was relieved of his relieved Rundstedt was relieved of his command four days later. As the German drive against Moscow slackened, the Soviet commander on the Moscow front, General Yorgi Konstanovich Zhukov, on December the 6th, inaugurated the first great counteroffensive, with strokes against Box Right in the Yelets and Elitz and Tula sectors south of Moscow, and against his center in the in the Klin and Kalinin, now Tver sectors to the to the northwest. Levies of Siberian troops, who were extremely effective fighters in cold weather, were used for these offensives. There were there followed a blow. There followed a blow at the German left in Veliki Luki sector and the counteroffensive, which soon took the form of a triple convergence towards Smolensk, was sustained through the winter of 1941-42. Operation Barbarossa had begun, had begun to miscarry in August of 1941, and its failures was patent when the Soviet counteroffensive started. Although the Red Army experienced greater losses, than the Germans during the campaign, the inability of German forces to defeat the Soviet Union marked a significant setback for the German military effort. Um, this was edited and written by John Graham Royd Smith. And this is from the Encyclopedia Britannica, which may or may not be true, who knows. In graduate school 25 Boblimtok years ago, more or less, let's call it almost 30, in graduate school, I studied Russian history, military history, and specifically the history of the Soviet Union. I haven't really been keeping up on that stuff in the last 30 years. I've been a, a computer programmer for the last 20. So my brain's a mess compared to where it was in, a tw in, you know, in my 20s when I would talk about this. Um, one of the more interesting Russian generals that people often don't hear of for, for reasons that would be obvious once we get into it, is a man by the name of Marshal Tukashevsky. Marshal Tukashevsky was not a, a, an active World War II marshal. He was not a general during World War II. Why? Because Marshal Tukashevsky was one of the first officers to be executed by Joseph Stalin in the late 1930s during the purges. Um, he, was the he was the first to go. About 40,000 Red Army um, Soviet Navy officers were put on trial and executed in the late 30s prior to World War II by the Soviet Union, by Joseph Stalin. And those 
30,000 were eclipsed by millions of Russians who were taken in the night and executed during the Great Terror. Nobody really knows how many Russians um, and Ukrainians for sure that Joseph Stalin killed. The estimate for Ukraine is in the millions. The estimate of Russians is often two or three times that number. And many ethnic groups were attacked during that period. That period of Stalin's Great Terror that really didn't end, it, it was put on pause during World War II, but that period really didn't end until Stalin's death in 1953, Bo Blimtok. Marshal Tukhachevsky was one of those, you know, interwar year thinkers in the military, you know, a lot like JFC Fuller or von Siecht in Germany between World War I and World War II, Tukhachevsky was one of those who understood that the nature of warfare had changed. Prior to World War I, objectives were all about places. I must protect the castle. I must protect the mine. I must protect the oil. And World War I was very much a siege mentality war. It was about land. It was about a specific place. Whereas Tukhachevsky and von Siegt and JFC Fuller, and, you know, I would say probably General Patton at that time, who wasn't even a general yet, I don't think. I mean, he might have been by that time. But General Patton, um, these people understood that it wasn't about a place. It wasn't about a specific objective. It was about destroying the enemy, which means you destroy command and control, you operate deep inside the lines, you create chaos, and then you piecemeal take militaries apart. And don't get obsessed about places. If you have a problem with a city, you, you surround it with forces, and you move the fuck on. That is the combined arms dynamic warfare model that was being developed during the 20s and 30s. And Tukhachevsky was one of those who developed similar theories. His was called Deep Battle. And Deep Battle was very much like what von Siecht understood or JFC Fuller understood. I'm not going to go much deeper into what Deep Battle is, but you can research Tukhachevsky on your own. The key point is, is that prior to World War II, the, the Soviet high command had been lobotomized. For all intents and purposes, even though the Soviets had a lot of, you know, guns, a lot of bullets, and actually they had at least one tank in the pipeline, the T-34, that was actually a pretty good tank. It had defects. It was one of the few World War tanks without a floating turret. And what does that mean, no floating turret? It means that the turret was on the top of the tank, but as the turret moved around, you had to shuffle, shuffle your feet. Whereas modern battle tanks, um, other than the driver, modern battle tanks, the, the crew inside the tank sit inside a turret that's floating, it moves around. Um, it can be disorienting, but the truth is it's way more effective. It's way more effective. But other than that, the T-34 had an aluminum block engine, it ran on diesel, it had really wide tracks, and it had a ripped off version of Christie suspension, which means it could go pretty fast. I mean, compared to tanks of its age, the T-34 was very mobile. It had, a, I believe, a high-velocity 76-millimeter cannon, which wasn't the biggest cannon you could put on a tank, but 76-millimeter in 1941 was very effective. Understand that when the Germans invaded the Soviet Union in 1941, they took millions of horses with them. 
they were very much equipped, a lot of the infantry were still equipped with basic bolt-action rifles, okay? They actually didn't have enough trucks. You may not know this, but the Germans in 41 didn't have enough trucks to support this campaign. So they took trucks from the French and from other places they invaded and they hobbled together this army. My point is, when they say this was the most powerful German force ever, that's kind of the truth, but you need to understand that under the surface there were issues. And as far as the tanks go, and I think Heinz Guderian in his um, biography, Panzer Leader, would go into this, <clears throat> but as far as the tanks go, the Germans had a lot of tanks that were, were not that great. You know, people have this vision of German technology, um, and, and some of that's true. But understand that prior to 1942, German military manufacturing was, was in chaos, and they produced a lot of tanks that weren't that good. There's a, there's a guy... Um, Yeah, the Reichsminister for Economics, I always forget his name, but he took over. He took over in 42, and he more or less rationalized the German manufacturing. The problem is, by the time you get to 1942, without some significant military successes against, against the Soviet Union, um, they were more or less doomed, you know? After 42, it kind of changes. Albert Speer, Albert Speer, S-P-E-E-R. He took over as Reich's Minister for Economics. Think of him as the person that managed German manufacturing for the war effort and for other efforts from 1942 through the end of the war. Prior to Albert Speer, um, the German war effort wasn't that rational. And understand that prior to 1939, the United States, Great Britain, we're already gearing up for total war. That's another thing you have to understand as a concept. Prior to World War II, and probably really World War I, total war was something that the world had not seen much of. Like, you could argue that the Second Punic War between the Romans and Carthage was pretty close to total war. Like, in ancient world terms, the Romans mobilized hundreds of legions. And they were all over the Mediterranean. I mean, they were operating everywhere. And they were operating year-round, which was a rarity in the ancient world for reasons that should be obvious. You know, ancient societies were highly dependent upon, um, you know, food production, obviously. And that was, you know, significant to their societies for them, for, those, for their societies to function. And so often battles didn't take place year-round because you got to harvest crops. You need food to eat. But during the Second Punic War, the Romans managed to maintain a war effort for many, many years, operating pretty much year-round. But other than that, if you, if you go through time, up into World War I and World War II, the concept of total war, it just wasn't something that ever really happened. And even in World War I, it wasn't until the end of the war that you could say total war was beginning to occur. Total war means everybody. It means men. It means women. It means everyone is participating in the production of weapons. 
and everyone is participating in the combat and everyone that can be mobilized into a military force will be mobilized. But 1942 was too late. That's the problem. By the time Speer takes over, it's already too late. And keep in mind, the debacle at Stalingrad was the result of the summer offensive of 42 that led to the defeat of the Sixth Army at Stalingrad in early 1943. The last German offensive on the Eastern Front happened in the summer of 1943, Operation Citadel, around the Curse Salient. Salient. And a salient is like a little peninsula of land that sticks into your enemy's territory, which, you know, you can pinch it off, right? Pinch off a loaf. But um, yeah, Operation Citadel, they tried to pinch off a loaf and they had some tanks like the Panther tank, which was by the end of the war, a pretty decent tank. And in many ways, it was the prototype of every post-war battle tank. It had a rudimentary night sight system. It had, I believe, an 88 millimeter cannon based upon the anti-aircraft system that was used so well. It had a lot of really great features, the Panther tank. But the problem was, is that the Panther tanks rolled into Operation Citadel were all prototypes. They had 80 tanks rolling off, just brand new, fresh from the factory, without any real testing, and a big proportion of those tanks caught fire. After 1943, everything the Germans would do on the Eastern Front would be a delaying action. It would be a slow, grinding march back to Germany. So if you want to understand how critical Operation Barbarossa was, understand that even the Germans knew that if they didn't knock out the Soviet Union, in six months, they, they probably wouldn't, you know, and, and it was not a sure thing. But the reality is by, by late July 1941, the Soviets were on the ropes and the Germans could have knocked them out. There's a great book by um, a Dr. Stolfi called Hitler's Panzers East, and the link is in the notes. And Stolfi believes that the Germans intended to conduct an operation much like the, the operations they conducted in the Low Countries and against France and, you know, in Yugoslavia and Greece. And the idea was they did not intend to fight a multi-year war. They expected that if they captured what was called the Moscow-Gorky mobilization space, this is the area around Moscow, where strategic forces, strategic forces would converge in order to be redirected to the front, if they captured this area by the end of summer 1941, they were more or less convinced that they would have won the war against the Soviets. And there are many people who agree. Keep in mind, as much as the Russians ended up hating the Germans, in the summer of 41, early summer, right, literally the first days of summer when Barbarossa began, Russians mostly were in fear of or hated Joseph Stalin. If the Germans had taken a different approach with the Russians and the German and, and the Ukrainians, I mean, they more or less liberated Ukrainians and said, here's a rifle, fight with us. And a lot of Ukrainians joined the Nazis. Let's just get that one out. But let's, let's pull that Band-Aid off right there. A lot of Ukrainian forces joined the Nazis during World War II. And, you know, you can get it, I understand, because Stalin killed a lot of Ukrainians. So, you know, payback is a bitch. 
but when it came to the Russians and and also different ethnic groups like gypsies and Jewish people, the Germans were ruthless. And and in the very first months, they sent teams of people out to do executions and to you know conduct mass you know trials or whatever. Is it basically just to murder a bunch of people? When when you think about like for example, when people think about the death camp, and, and this is important historically speaking. The death camp, as we understand it, didn't really come, in, come into existence until late 1942. There was a conference, the Wannsee Conference. But by late 1942, there were many in the German high command who suspected that if something didn't change, the Germans would lose the war. Um, once, once the Wannsee Conference was over, the Germans did a lot of things on the Eastern Front that were even more terrible. But the bottom line is, right from the beginning, the Germans conducted ethnic cleansing. If they had taken a different approach with the Russian people, that too would have changed the dynamics on the Eastern Front. I, I think that you could have found a lot of Russians who would have put up pictures of Hitler if he had not been Hitler. But Hitler was Hitler. Another thing too, and Stolfi points this out, it's kind of critical, and Stolfi points this out, is that Hitler learned about war on the Western Front during World War I. And for Hitler, war was about siege and places. The problem is, after World War I, actual military science was about dynamic, integrated, multi-arms warfare. And it wasn't about taking a location, it was about defeating the enemy. And that, that was a problem because Hitler in August of 41 was thinking like a World War I general and that was the wrong way to think. It's why he redirected forces to the south. It's why he redirected and focused the efforts on the Ukraine. For him it was like, oh, we gotta take the bread basket. We gotta take the, the bread and the oil we can get. And, and what he should have been doing is saying, let's knock out the Soviet high command. Heinz Guderian in late July had issues, but the issues were resolvable. And in reality, by late July, pretty much all of the significant Soviet forces between Army Group Center and Moscow were destroyed. In late July, if they decided to keep going to Moscow, there are many who believe, and, and Stolfi is one, many who believe that they would have completed the campaign against Moscow by mid-September. And if they had done that, yeah, probably the Soviets would have been knocked out of the war. And if they hadn't been knocked out, they would have been well beyond the Ural Mountains. I mean, yeah, maybe Stalin would have survived in Siberia with some remnant of the Soviet system and some factories, but that it would have been in a situation that probably from which he couldn't really have attacked Germany any longer. Um, and when you look at this type of situation and the military stuff, I just want to mention the reason why I've not really kept up the current thinking on all this crap is because when I left the service in 1999, I was sick of it. I had my fill of a lot of military bullshit. If you ask me, do I think people, communities, even large groups of people might sometimes have to join together to defend themselves? Absolutely. And the most dangerous society to attack ever would be a free society, which I would love to find one. But those don't really exist any longer, if they ever did. Um, but in terms of building militaries to attack and invade other places, 
I don't buy it. I don't accept it. I don't accept any of the garbage from any of the Democrats or Republicans about how the United States is the rational actor, blah, blah, blah. The United States polluted Southeast Asia with thousands of tons of toxic chemicals in the 60s and the 70s. The United States has left hundreds if not thousands of tons of depleted uranium spalled and dustified all around the Persian Gulf and Afghanistan. When people say we're the essential nation, this essential nation under Trump, under Obama, not under Obama, but under Trump and under Biden, which I guess is also Obama, has captured the resources of a sovereign nation, Syria, taken their fucking oil, and what's the justifi justification? A magical terrorist force armed with 556 NATO and brand new Toyota trucks that somehow raced into the desert in 2014 called ISIS. But somehow stealing Syrian oil is related to that. We don't really know how. So when people say things like, well, we're the essential nation and we're defending freedom, it's all bullshit. Okay? When you think about the current situation with, with the Ukraine, understand this. NATO forces in the Ukraine would be like German forces between the Ukraine and Russia in 41, which means without firing one fucking shot, they would have already been in the same spot that Guderian was in late July. So imagine if Barbarossa started at the Ukraine-Russian line, and that's where they began their offensive, only a few hundred miles from Moscow. That probably would have been a slam dunk. The Germans would have knocked out the Soviets very quickly. Like I said, the Soviet high command was decapitated when that war began. There's a guy by the name of Zhukov, General Zhukov. Do you know what happened to him in the late 30s? He didn't get killed. He got sent to a camp. He got sent to the Gulag Archipelago. When he got back after the Germans invaded, he was told, don't talk about it or you and your family die. Some of his friends asked him about why, why all his teeth had been knocked out. And Zhukov said, you know, I had been on a long and dangerous mission. Well, that's true. A long and dangerous mission in a Soviet labor camp. So when you want to understand the Soviet high, high command in 1941, understand that it was in chaos, it was not functional. You had Red Army soldiers and Red Army officers on June the 22nd, 1941, as German tanks rolled at them. You had them calling up to say, can we shoot? Can we go get ammo? So Stalin was so paranoid of the military in 41, the Soviets didn't even have access to ammo on the first day of combat. They basically had to get permission and then someone had to unlock the ammo facility. This, was, this is a problem, brothers and sisters, if you want to actually defend yourself. So if you're asking the question, could the Germans have done it? The answer is yes. If you're asking why today the Russians are upset if NATO expands into the Ukraine, well, it's not that fucking complicated. If NATO forces were in the Ukraine at this point, if they had all the missiles, all the technology, all the combat troops they needed in the Ukraine, and if they had those forces in the Baltic states, they would be in a position to attack Russia relatively easily, and who knows? 
I mean, they say that we don't have any functional hypersonics at this point, but if you're only a couple hundred miles from Moscow, you don't need a hypersonic. A good old-fashioned, you know, supersonic missile will do just fine. If you're just a few hundred miles from Moscow, there are ATACM missiles and probably newer block versions of ATACMs that you can fire out of an MLRS that can hit Moscow. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if the United States has continued to develop small nukes. So who knows what kind of small nuclear weapons we could use. The bottom line is quite simple. By putting NATO into the Ukraine, we were, in fact, threatening people. We were threatening the Russian people. Putin, it couldn't, you know, you could have had someone other than Putin back in 2014, and the outcome would have been the same. In fact, everyone else, everybody else after Putin that would be the most likely next person in line, all of them are way more belligerent. All of them way more likely to want to trigger World War III. I don't know how else to explain it. People don't understand that the border of the Ukraine and Russia is about 8 to 12 driving hours. That's driving a car from Moscow. It's seconds for a missile, hypersonic or not. It is in many ways a primary threat to the Russian people. They're, and you know what? The Russians have a memory of World War II. They have a memory of losing 40, 50 million people in that war. Okay, we did not lose 40 or 50 million in that war. I think our total deaths were somewhere around 250,000, maybe 300. We did not lose remotely the same numbers. And we were not under threat the way that the Russians were. We were not, you know, we didn't have Japanese and German armies operating in the continental United States, rounding people up and executing them. This is something the Russians experienced with the Germans. So when you want to understand why the Russian people would be so fucking upset about NATO going into, into the Ukraine, understand that they have experience with Germans and Westerners uh, joining forces and threatening them. And it's not ancient fucking history. And then you add into that the 1990s, which was a lot about looting Russia. Looting Russia, taking advantage of Russia. There were more than a few Russian historians and experts who said back in the early 90s that this was an opportunity to treat Russia the way we treated Germany and Japan after World War II. But instead of doing that, we took it as an opportunity to rip them the fuck off. So when you think about the Ukraine, please study some of the fucking history. I'm not saying that I think it's great that Putin invaded the Ukraine. But the fact is NATO forces in the Ukraine was and would be a clear and present danger to the Russian people. And if he did nothing, it's entirely likely that he would have been taken out and replaced with somebody that would do something. And that next person in line, and I haven't been keeping up with Russian politics, so who the, fo who the fuck knows what dark, dark figure is behind, you know, behind Putin if Putin goes. But that next person in line would probably go directly to pushing the button. Because right now might be the perfect opportunity. The Biden administration and the Trump administration and the Obama and Bush administration have done so much damage to the, to the United States military and to its readiness, 
that if you were going to conduct a targeted sneak attack with nuclear weapons, now would be the time. That's the next topic. So what is mutually assured destruction? Well, before we get into that, I want to talk about game theory. And game theory is a big subject. You know, you can read about um, Nash, von Neumann. There were a lot of people in the 20th century who thought about the decision-making process in terms of probabilities and payoffs. Like, it's like gambling. You go to the fucking casino, you got some money in your pocket, you play the game, you get a payoff. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Game theory is sort of related to that, but it is specifically related to optimizing choices. There's a, a game theory thought experiment called the prisoner's dilemma. Imagine you have two prisoners Al and Bob. Al and Bob end up stealing a car. Al and Bob get caught. The cops, you know, unbeknownst to Al and Bob, the police don't have very good evidence. So what they need is a confession. So Al is in one interrogation room and Bob is in the other. And the cop goes and talks to Al and he says, Al, buddy, if you, if you keep your mouth shut and don't talk, you're going to go to jail for 10 years. But if you tell me something right now, you'll go to jail for five. And the cop goes to Bob's little interrogation room. He says, Bob, you want to go to jail for a decade? You want to miss out on your hooker wife? Oh, keep your mouth shut. But if you want a chance in hell to get out, maybe with parole pretty soon, you got to talk. Now, if Al and Bob both keep their mouths shut, they, they both go free. That is literally the optimal choice. But the Nash Equilibrium says they're both going to talk, which means they're both going to get five years. They're both going to talk, they'll both get five years, and they're both going to go to jail. Nash Equilibrium, um, and that's based upon the work of John Nash. There's a movie called The Beautiful Mind that's about John Nash, but Nash Equilibrium refers to the, the location in the problem-solving space where participants will most likely go. It doesn't mean it's optimal. It means that it's most likely. That's, that's the reality of it, which means that suboptimal outcomes often result from rational choices as we perceive them. That's a little piece of game theory. Now let me read about mutually assured destruction. Mutual assured destruction, or MAD, is a, is a doctrine of military strategy and national security policy in which a full-scale use of nuclear weapons by an attacker on, an, on a nuclear-armed defender with second-strike capabilities would cause the complete annihilation of both the attacker and the defender. It is based upon the theory of rational deterrence, which holds that the threat of using strong weapons against the enemy prevents the enemy's use of those same weapons. The strategy is a form of Nash equilibrium in which, once armed, neither side has any incentive to initiate a conflict or to disarm. And I'll let you research more of this on, on your own. Here's the thing, though. In order for you to apply mutual assured destruction in the context of game theory, you have to assume, and this is critical with game theory, that all of the actors are rational and that their rational goals, the goals they want, their optimal goals, are goals you understand. The problem is, is that in warfare, 
rationality isn't always present, and in warfare, cultures often misunderstand each other's goals. It's kind of like they shoot past each other, culturally speaking. In some ways, it's similar to the situation of the indigenous peoples of North America and European forces. Um, on one level, there is the simple mathematics of steel and blood, and that's really what determined the outcome. But on another level, these two cultures really didn't understand each other. They didn't understand their goals, and in some ways that resulted in, in a lot of very terrible outcomes, but also very strange ones. Um, if you are in a world of nuclear weapons, and it is really just two-person game theory, Mutually assured destruction kind of works, okay? It does kind of work. Like you have the Soviet Union, you have the United States. The problem is, and this is where things get tricky, and this is the history you don't get taught. The problem is by the 1960s, the Chinese had their first atomic weapons. And you may not know this, but the Chinese communists and, and the Russian communists split up early in the Cold War. It was called the Sino-Soviet split, which means that Mao Zedong and the Soviet Union they didn't really get along for a long period of time. This was one of the factors, believe it or not, in the late Vietnam War period. The fact that the Chinese and the Russians were at odds with each other. During the Cold War, there were several border battles between the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China. Something people don't know. They're called secret wars. They actually occurred. The Nixon administration, under Kissinger's advice, actually took advantage of the Sino-Soviet split in the early 70s. And we also got ourselves an inflation dump for 40 years. And by the early 80s, China would become our consumer inflation dump. We could print as much money as we wanted to. The, the Chi-Coms did not care about how their people were treated, and they were willing to take the U.S. Treasury because the U.S. dollar is backed up by good faith and credit. Huh. Yeah. By the 19, let's say the 1970s, with respect to the Cold War, two-person game theory no longer applied. And by the time you get to the post-Soviet period, the 90s and the early 2000s, you have multiple dynamics in the world of nuclear warfare. You have Pakistan, India, you have Israel vis-a-vis -vis Iran and everybody else. You have North Korea with atomic weapons. And obviously you still have the, the baseline countries. You have France and Great Britain, you have the United States, you have Russia. And I would argue in my opinion, because of the game theory of nuclear war, probably just about every country on Earth that can't afford it probably has one or two secret bombs. I'm sorry, that may sound paranoid, but I have no doubt that if a country has the money, they bought a nuclear weapon. It doesn't mean they bought one that works. Probably they know how to figure that out. But I have no doubt that many bought the enriched uranium and the plutonium, which is the most significant difficulty. It is getting the plutonium and getting the enriched uranium. The rest of it is stuff you can read about in the library. The rest of it is stuff that a lot of ordinary people with a background in mechanical and electrical engineering can build themselves. The hard part is getting the fissionable material, the plutonium, um, the enriched uranium, and if you want to build a hydrogen bomb, the tritium. 
That's the hard part. Well, in the world of today, we have what's called n-person game theory. So in linear algebra, if you have balanced equations, you can, you can find an optimal, unique solution to a set of equations. You say, Dan, what does that have to do? Well, the problem with n-person game theory, where you have multiple players, multiple strategies, is that you don't have one good solution, which means, it's, it, it means by definition it's unstable. There is no good solution. There is no Nash equilibrium. You will never fucking get there in n-person game theory. So just on that level alone, we should take the concept of mutually assured destruction and throw it out the fucking window. The other problem with MAD in the context of today, the United States vis-a-vis -vis Russia, is that MAD depends upon the belief that your opponent is sane. And I mentioned this in the last few podcasts because I need to make this point. If your opponent in the world of nuclear brinkmanship believes you are crazy, and if your opponent suspects that your military is in not as good shape as you claim it is, but you still have nukes for second strike capability, what you ought to do at that point is take them out. And if you suspect that they're retaliatory strike capability is not as resilient um, as the belligerent claims it is, then you really do have an incentive to attack. I would argue, based upon just game theory, if, and again, you have to believe some things are true at this point in order to keep going, because between you and I, I believe the world has been exposed to coordinated military psychological warfare on a very high level since early 2020. And, and so I have a hard time looking at Putin in Russia or Winnie the Pooh in China or a lot of these characters as independent agents. But let's pretend, let's put on our magical pretend helmet and let's pretend that Putin is a rational actor. You may not like him. He may be a shitbird. He may have been done terrible shit in the KGB. Get over it. Elder Bush, as I pointed out, the early 90s, late 80s Bush was director of CIA. And he did a lot of crooked shit. So you need to get over that bullshit about, oh my God, he was part of the KGB. Oh my God, the last presidents of the United States have shitty backgrounds too. Get the fuck over it. And, and I won't even go into the rehabilitation of torture during the war on terror, really. Get over it. Get over it. We've murdered and killed a lot of people ourselves. You need to fucking get over it. But let's just assume that no matter how you feel about Putin personally, that he's a rational actor and he cares about his people. If he believes that the United States, A, does not have an effective nuclear deterrence beyond first strike. Like, we could still do first strike, but if we can't do first strike, we can't do much, A. And B, that our government is insane. Then nothing about MAD applies. You can only use MAD if you believe your opponent has sane objectives, sane goals, and outcomes. But if your opponent's goal is to destroy you, and if your opponent's goal is to remake the world in some crooked way, like whatever, the Great, the great Reset, then you have every reason to launch a, a, a targeted, and I'm not going to say surgical because I think that's a euphemism, but you have every um, incentive to launch a very targeted first strike. 
I don't think it would be a massive swarm attack. I don't think they'd hit every American city, but they would take out key command and control and they would decapitate the, the decision-making process of Washington, D.C. And then, as the Prussians did in 1871, they would make their peace and, and it would be over. Now, the outcome would be all of American forces would be taken back to the United States because there wouldn't be a country that would take a U.S. dollar at that point. And if you can't bribe people, you're not going to keep your forces in their countries. So one of the outcomes of a war, a little nuclear war with Russia for us, if they did launch a first strike, it wouldn't be that they would invade. That's dumb. There is no incentive for the Russians to invade us and there is no incentive for the Chinese. But... I do think American forces overseas would be coming home. And that means that overnight the American empire's over, overnight the US dollar's done, and overnight America's gonna have enough of its own problems to take care of. It won't have the energy, the resources, or the will to attack anybody else. So if the Russians and the Chinese believe that the United States decision-making process has gone insane, they would be insane, they would be crazy to not attack. That's what I would tell you right now. If you believe this Ukraine stuff is real and you live near a primary target in the United States, there's a good chance that one of these mornings you don't wake up. And I'm sorry, but that's just the brutal truth of nuclear war. Mutually assured destruction is really useful. Really useful in a world where you can assume people are not crazy, where they're going to make decisions that make sense. But nuclear conflict becomes very likely in a world where one or more opponents believes the other is crazy. And, and everything the Biden administration is telegraphing right now from a foreign policy perspective looks batshit fucking crazy. That should worry you. I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. I don't care if you're, you're Ukrainian and you hate Russians. If you actually care about the planet not being further irradiated, this should bother you. And the problem with nuclear conflict, and this is, this is really the thing that keeps Putin from pushing the button, if he's rational. The problem with nuclear combat is that it's kind of a use it or lose it scenario. If we were to have a little nuclear war, there are many, many countries that would treat this as an opportunity. North Korea might, Iran might, Israel might. There are other countries, Pakistan and India, for example. There are other countries with nuclear weapons who may take a little nuclear war as an opportunity. And once the nukes start flying, the ability to turn off nuclear combat is the issue. The problem with nuclear weapons is that they are caustic, they are destructive to the very command and control that you would use to, neg to negotiate a peace. They are caustic to the systems, they are caustic to the people. So once you go down that road, you have to destroy your enemy. Now in this case, keep in mind, this is a lot like the, the rethinking of military science in the interwar years. In this case, defeating your enemies not a, is not about blowing up cities. It isn't. It never was. Defeating your enemies is about taking out their leadership. And that's why you do a sneak attack. A sneak attack with hypersonic weapons basically means that 
the Congress, the Senate, the generals in Washington, D.C., they get taken out without any warning, any notification. Maybe a few seconds of warning and a, and a text message from Putin that says, kiss your ass goodbye. And NATO would be taken out too, again, with weapon systems that the Russians and the Chinese currently possess. And then probably just to disrupt command and control, you would have a swarm EMP attack. That's electromagnetic pulse. And that means that a lot of basic infrastructure in this country would become useless if it has a computer chip. You know, I don't care if it's a pumping station for water. I don't care if it's a refinery. God forbid it's a boiling water nuclear reactor. Imagine 20 or 30 Fukushima's. That could be the result of a Russian-Chinese um, first strike, sneak attack. That, that is the problem, folks. You know, a lot of these neocon motherfuckers want to convince you that warfare is clean and predictable. Well, it is, sort of. If, if, if you're in asymmetric warfare and your enemy doesn't remotely understand your capability, a.k.a. Europeans versus indigenous Americans, then it really is just a slaughter, a big slaughter. If you're, you know, if you're in combat against nations that have one or two generations removed of primary weapon systems, a.k.a. Iraq, a.k.a. Syria, a.k.a. all the, the people, poor people around the world that have a lot of, you know, old Soviet weapons, then yeah, you can defeat them, probably. You know, you probably don't want to fight them in the jungles of Southeast Asia because that's never going to really work out for the same reasons as I explained. You just don't understand their objectives. You don't understand what their rational goals are, if such exist. But if the United States is fighting a bunch of poor people, then it's true. We can wipe them out. What happens when that's not the case? What happens when you're fighting folks who know what the fuck they're doing? We don't really know the answer to that question. We have Grenada, we have Iraq, we have Afghanistan, we have examples of our modern technology against people who are one, two decades or two centuries behind us. But we don't really have a contemporary example of American forces fighting technologies and capabilities that are more or less symmetric. We don't. We don't know. Um, I would contend, here's the other problem too, I would contend that if United States conventional forces were sent to the Ukraine, that it would be pretty bloody. And it, there's a good chance, given the incompetence in our own government, because in a lot of ways, our high command right now, our, our American high command, is a lot like the Soviet high command in 1941, okay? And this is where the analogies break down. There's a lot of incompetence a lot of incapacity, a lot of bad objectives, a lot of political correctness, and not a lot of a rationality, a lot of crazy motherfuckers wearing the bird and wearing stars. Um, so there's a good chance that our conventional forces would get tore up. And if that happens, then you have the other problem. Can you mobilize for war? Well, I've spoken to people, I know this myself. We cannot mobilize for a World War II style war right now. It would probably take one to three years. You know, I, I would go to the, the podcast I just did with Seattle Mike, 
who works for a major aerospace firm, and that's all I'll say, and he'll tell you what I'll tell you. We can make boutique weapons that are really fucking expensive, and then once they're gone, it takes months or years to replace them. In order to mass produce the types of weapons we would need for total war against the Russians, it could take one or two years to scale up. Putin knows this, okay? Putin knows that if our conventional forces are defeated in a major way, the only next option that we have is first strike. So here you are, you're Putin, you're China, you're Russia, and you're looking at the United States and you're saying to yourselves, they, they're crazy motherfuckers at this point. They're, they're batshit crazy. They're monkey herpes crazy. They have nuclear weapons, but it looks like their command and control is filled with crazy people, incompetent people. And there's a good chance we could, you know, bloody their noses in conventional one-on-one -on -one warfare. Ergo, there are too many risk points of the United States itself launching a preemptive nuclear war. So in the basic calculus, like I said, of nuclear warfare, every incentive for the Russians and the Chinese is to, is to basically launch a coordinated sneak attack. And I, like I said, it's not Red Dawn, okay? People who think that taking territory is what it's about are thinking like Hitler in August of 41 or like the Western Army High Commands in 1914. That's not the world any longer. It's about defeating your enemy, which is really what it's always been about, in truth. It's just that sometimes we don't understand what that means. In this case, the Russians fully understand. They'll take out the high command, they'll take out command and control, and they might even launch a swarm attack of EMP weapons and leave the United States in a pretty bad state. And in that situation, what else do they need to do but sit back and drink beer and eat popcorn? Okay, the, the distance between American civic society being intact and going into chaos isn't a very big trip at this point, brothers and sisters. If they launched a swarm attack with EMP weapons, every major American city would be in chaos within two weeks. And then basically you have the collapse of American society. They don't need to do shit. They just need to wait until everything works its way out and then make a deal with whoever ends up on top. That would be the Russian strategy. That would be the Chinese strategy. They wouldn't invade. They don't have armies in British Columbia. They would sit back, eat their fucking popcorn, and probably laugh at us. That's if you think any of this is real. If you think any of this is real, then I believe there is a risk of, yeah, the Chinese and the Russians launching a preemptive nuclear strike. And it could happen any time. That is the nature of a sneak attack. They don't tell you about it. And who knows? Who knows? Like I said, the best hope for you right now is that this is more bullshit. That, that my underlying theory is still true. They're trying to keep us confused and angry and immobilized. Now, of course, the question for what, to what, ha you know, comes up, and that gets to be pretty fucking horrifying. But if that's the case, then this Ukraine nonsense will blow over before Christmas. But if it is real, 
if there is a major coordinated campaign of sorts happening in the Ukraine, and if the United States continues to be this fucking crazy, batshit crazy and stupid, then the math is simple. Um, the Chinese and the, the Russians got to take us out. And when I say us, I don't mean every American. Although once the EMP attack is done, Americans will be taking each other out just for food. Just for food and water. No, when I say take us out, I mean Washington, D.C., I mean NORAD, I mean every major Air Force command and control, every major nuclear submarine base. I wouldn't want to live anywhere near the nuclear submarines, and there's a few of them in Washington State, I'm sorry. And a swarm EMP attack will likely result in a few of our boiling water reactors going Fukushima. And if that happens, there's a lot of places on the East Coast you just don't want to live. You don't. You don't want to be downstream from a boiling water reactor at this point. Because once that EMP attack is over, best case scenario of the 80-some reactors, plus or minus we have, a huge proportion are boiling water breeder types. You don't want to live near them. You don't want to be around them. They're simply going to, they're going to melt down and it's going to be really ugly. So there you go. On June the 22nd, 1941, the Germans launched an offensive that if it had worked out and there was every chance it could have, very likely would have resulted in the Germans negotiating a peace um, with respect to World War II and still maintaining control of Europe. And that would have been the best case scenario for the Allies. The worst case scenario with Albert Speer in charge in 42 and a defeated Soviet Union would be missiles raining down on the United States by 1944. Um, the, the Germans were working on not just the V1 and the V2. The Germans were working on other types of missile systems, multi-stage missile systems that in theory could have reached the United States. The Germans were also working on the atomic bomb. And despite all the propaganda and all the rationalizations about Buna plants using so much electricity, the reality is some of the yellow cake we used against Japan might have come from Germany. Some of that uranium might have come from Germany. So there's every reason to believe that the Germans would have had the bomb. There's evidence that in October of 44, the Germans tested a fission device in the, in the Baltic. So by 1944, if the Germans had defeated the Soviet army, there is the likelihood that atomic missiles would have been raining down in the United States by 44 and 1945. That would have been a different World War II. That would have been a different kind of world. And in that scenario, unlike Putin, who I think is a rational actor, Hitler, who I think was, you know, batshit crazy, Hitler very well might have just wanted to just punish the United States and launch a ton of these things and kill a bunch of fucking people. Who knows? We don't know. We don't know because we were lucky that Hitler, you know, was so batshit crazy. Stolfi believes that if Hitler had been incapacitated in August of 1941, the Germans would have defeated the Soviets. 
So we should be thankful that Hitler was on his feet, healthy, conscious, aware, um, all vegan and loving vegetables, and giving really batshit stupid commands. Because if, if someone else had been in charge, it would have been different. It very well could have been different, you know? It just wasn't. And if you want to understand why we're at risk of a first strike scenario, it's because when you put NATO forces eight driving hours from Moscow, you are basically putting a knife at the throat of the Russian people, a people that lost almost half of their population during World War II. Almost, more like a third. So one in three people were dead by 1945. You try to understand those numbers, brothers and sisters, when you try to fucking understand why the Russians do not want NATO in the Ukraine. Have a great rest of your Wednesday. Oh, one more thing, though. If you like this podcast and you want it to continue, I do start a new job in a few weeks, but currently I got no money, and no money means that I don't know. But here's the deal. If you like the podcast and you're doing okay and you've taken care of your, you know, your family, you've taken care of the people you love, you have some food on hand and other materials to survive and you need to research what that means, but I would say prepare for 6 to 12 months of not having the grocery stores work. That's good advice. If you've done all those things um, and taken care of your pets and you still have money left over, I don't know who that is, nobody's got money right now, but you still have money left over, you can donate to this podcast. There'll be a PayPal link in the notes and you can donate and you can be like Frederick Barbarossa, Drong Knock Austin, push to the east, but in this case, push it to my pocket, baby. great rest of your Wednesday. You remember duck and cover? The bombs going off. Get underneath your desk. You can dig a hole, put a couple doors on top of it. Reagan said that'll help you, or at least help the archaeologist, you know, find your body later. Have a great rest of your Wednesday.